Crested in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. A good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for joining me. Let me remind you, Pope Francis has called a day of prayer and fasting in light of the ongoing Israel-Hamas war. Today was the day that he assigned for this day of prayer and fasting, a day of penance to which I invite sisters and brothers of the various Christian denominations, those belonging to other religions, and all those who have at heart the cause of peace in the world to join in as they see fit. So just want to make sure we talked about it the other day briefly. I want to make sure we laid it out there today because uh, it's very important. Also, the uh, U.S. bishops uh, are celebrating or at least marking the 25th anniversary of the International Religious Freedom Act. And we're going to talk about that today. Dr. Uh, Dan Philpott will be with me. The important, in 1998, this International Religious Freedom Act formally made the pursuit of religious liberty a part of American foreign policy. So we'll talk with Dan about that, what good it's done. And then also coming, oh, I'm also going to take time and just talk about the just and unjust war criteria uh, for what we've seen we see now going on in Israel. On October 28th in the year 312, the Emperor Constantine won a battle at the Milvian Bridge. The night before, it's said that he had a vision, which led him to fight under the protection of the Christian God. We're going to learn more about the events of the battle. We're going to learn about the sources for that story of Constantine's vision. We'll be joined by the historian Thomas Madden, who's professor of history and director of the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at St. Louis University, the author of many books uh, in, in some great modern scholar lectures uh, series as well. So Thomas will be with us uh, coming up a little bit later in this first hour. In the second hour of today's program, Dr. Matthew Bunsen joins us to look at what's going on globally in the Catholic Church. We know that on Wednesday, the Vatican issued a letter to the Church asking Catholics to take an active role in the discernment and decision-making of the Church. This, again, is, um, we might call it the more synodality letter. Uh, we're going to find out exactly what is expected and pick up on a lot of other stories that are of interest to observant Catholics around the world. But first, the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Friday, October 27th, it's the Feast of St. Emelina of Boulancourt. Today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. Pope Francis consecrated the Church and the world to the Blessed Virgin Mary in a Eucharistic Adoration Prayer for Peace in St. Peter's Square. The prayer was the culmination of a worldwide day of fasting, prayer, and penance for peace in the world called for by the Pope amid the escalating war between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. The Pope presided over the prayer of the Sorrowful Mysteries of the Rosary, the Litany of Loretto, and the Exposition and Benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. Boston police arrested a man Wednesday for allegedly assaulting a woman and defacing a crucifix outside the Cathedral of the Holy Cross. 
37-year-old Michael Patslip was charged with assault and malicious destruction of property. Police say he was dangling from the crucifix and damaged both the arms of Christ before he was arrested. A suspected mass shooter remains at large in Maine. Lewiston Police Chief David St. Pierre is asking the public to remain patient as the investigation continues, noting that there are many moving parts. I want to assure all that a tremendous amount of law enforcement, manpower, time and effort is being utilized around the clock, literally around the clock, in every effort to apprehend the suspect as well as to safeguard this community. U.S. Army Reservist Robert Card is suspected of killing 18 people and injuring 13 others after he opened fire inside a bowling alley and then at a bar. Almost 700 square miles of the state are under shelter-in-place orders, with officials saying Card should be considered armed and dangerous. And the United Auto Workers Union may be close to reaching a deal with General Motors. CNBC reporting talks are continuing today. Auto workers have been on strike since September 14th. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Well, I just came across a shocking uh, survey conducted by Harvard Caps Harris. It was a poll of 2,100 uh, voters, and it was taken uh, recently after the October 7th massacre. Um, it turns out that a quarter of Americans believe the atrocities committed by Hamas on October 7th were justified. I, here you have a pre-planned design Hamas death squads enter Israel on a Jewish holy day. They butcher. They don't attack military. They attack civilians. Uh, Fourteen hundred Israelis, the vast majority of which were civilians. Women were raped. Children, infants were burned alive. There's some claims of behead kids. I don't know if it's better to behead kids or burn them. The dead were mutilated. They were paraded through the streets. And all of this grotesque barbarism was, according to these people, Israel's fault. Um, 25% of American people uh, blaming Israel and saying that this grievance that Hamas has uh, entitled them to slaughter civilians. The question that was asked directly, do you think the Hamas killing of 1,200 Israeli civilians on Israel can be justified by the grievances of Palestinians, or is it not justified? But what's worse, not only... Do 25% of Americans agree that the brutality, the moral evil, was justified? But over 50% of respondents aged 18 to 24 affirmed that Hamas's pre-civilizational brutality was excusable. I mean, you have to ask, why? I mean, the, the tradition uh, of the West has been the protection of non-combatants. Not that we've always lived it out, but the point is that's always been the standard. And what you see, if you take a look at these protests, you find an amazing ideological overlap. You have some lead academics, you have Black Lives Matter activists involved, you have the Democratic Socialists of America, you have supporters of Hamas, uh, you have um, you know those who are calling for the for decolonization, and it is interesting that in all those cases, uh, those who make up those groups have a similar approach to problem solving. 
for them, every conflict can be reduced to a white hats and black hats, right? Oppressors and oppressed. That's how the universe is divided between those who are oppressed and those who are oppressors. And so all of these conflicts that we see in the world today are morality plays. And uh, Michael Cook, who's with uh, MercatorNet in Australia, put his finger on it. He says, look, this is moral relativism. Uh, you know, <laughs> come home. Um, students have lived in a, a world which denied moral absolutes, which denied that there were intrinsic moral evils. This has been being taught for decades. And now all of a sudden, they're acting as though they're not, there are no intrinsic moral evils. So it's all right to target civilians if one's goal is righteous. I mean, they've been taught there are no self-evident truths, no unchanging moral standards. And guess what? The students believe it now. No wonder they're celebrating the atrocities of Hamas. Konstantin Kissin is a commentator and had a, a good piece called The Day the Delusions Died. It was published this week at Free Press. And he drew our attention to a, an outstanding book from 1987 by the brilliant Thomas Sowell, economist, a commentator. It is a book called Conflict of Visions. It really is one of those uh, fundamental reads to try to understand the geopolitical, well, understand even Western politics. It's called A Conflict of Visions. And, and this is Sowell's argument. We disagree about politics because we disagree about human nature. We see the world through one of two competing visions, each of which tells a radically different story about human nature. There are those who have what can be called the, quote, unconstrained vision. Now, this is the vision that believes that human nature is malleable, that it can be perfected. This is the vision, the unconstrained vision, that believes all social ills and evils can be overcome through collective action that encourages humans to behave better. If you subscribe to this view, then poverty and crime and inequality and war are not inevitable. Rather, they're only puzzles that you can solve. You have to say the right things. You have to enact the right policies, spend enough money, and you can eliminate these social ills forever. This is the foundation of the so-called progressive mindset. In contrast, there are those who see the world through a, quote, constrained vision you know, this is the lens that believes that human nature is pretty much constant. And no amount of social engineering is going to change the sober reality of human self-interest. Or that human beings want to survive. Or that human empathy and social resources are scarce. People who see these things, the so-called constrained vision, uh, don't believe most political and social problems can be solved they can be managed to a more or less degree, but you're not going to eliminate these problems. And this approach is really the bedrock of the conservative worldview. Now, we can hope that the barbarism of Hamas has awakened people who may have been sympathetic to the woke ideology or the unconstrained vision. You can hope that many Americans who had assumed wokeness was about protecting minorities and victims have awakened here, shocked to discover, but awake anyways, that wokeness is really, when push comes to shove, is about raw power. 
This is what Benedict XVI talked about. The dictatorship of relativism. Relativism doesn't lead to everybody getting along. Relativism, relativism leads to somebody arising to impose a morality on others. Uh, in the words of Constantine Kisson, if there's any constant in human history, it is that revolutionaries always feel entitled to destroy those who stand in their way. And he points out that if the West does collapse in on itself, what's going to replace it is not a progressive utopia, but chaos and barbarism. And I, I have to say, I agree. Um, and there's a, there's a wicked irony at the heart of all this, that those who are most optimistic about human nature are those who actually pose the most dangerous threat to all of us. You know, humanity that is unrestrained and morally relativistic can become the most deadly. You might remember Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian writer, who told the story about talking to a man uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution, and the man, the question is, why have these things come upon us? And the man sagely said, we have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that the Catholic faith has resources to help us think sanely and clearly about this. We do believe that there are human acts that are intrinsically evil. This is what John Paul II's encyclical Veritatis Splendor was all about. It was reawakening people to the fact that there are human acts that are intrinsically evil. And, and secondly, we have an interesting view of human nature. We believe that human nature is fallen and in need of redemption, right? We believe that human nature is weakened by original sin. It's weakened by concupiscence. But we're not optimistic. We're hopeful about the future. Human nature can be redeemed, not through collective political action, you know, not through revolutionary schemes or utopian social schemes. Human nature can be redeemed and rendered fit for the kingdom of God because we've been redeemed by the king himself. We aren't optimistic about human nature, but we're hopeful about the coming of the kingdom, which won't be experienced apart from the king himself. And this is why the Catechism of the Catholic Church warns against false views of the future. It points out that those who have this uh, uh, unconstrained vision of human nature, the idea that human nature is malleable and perfectible, that this can lead to uh, a deception of the Antichrist. So the Antichrist will arise and spread a religious deception, a false messianism in which man glorifies himself in place of God and of his Messiah come in the flesh. Uh, the Antichrist will come to set up the kingdom on earth. According to Scripture, however, God's kingdom will not be fulfilled until the return of the king. The kingdom doesn't come by human progress. It comes only by God's victory over the final unleashing of evil, which will cause his bride to come down from heaven. God's triumph over the revolt of evil will take the form of the last judgment after the final cosmic upheaval of this passing world. End quote. Now, that doesn't mean that we're passive in the face of poverty or inequality. No, uh, we can act. We don't think we can eliminate those problems in their entirety, but we do think they can be managed to a more or less degree. 
So we don't just throw up our hands and say, we can't do anything about it. No, we take action and taking action against social evils is our form of bearing witness to the kingdom yet to come, where those problems will be finally solved. We never arrogate to ourselves uh, the, the hubris, which thinks we can change human nature uh, through progressive political schemes. No, observant, observant Catholics anticipate Christ's return. And with his return, justice will come to all mankind. The creation will be liberated from the burden that sin has imposed upon him. Uh, we long for the transformation of our weak bodies into his glorious body. Um, and divine life will be fully conferred upon us. We are now currently hidden with Christ in God. And so uh, we do look forward uh, to the future, not in an optimistic view uh, that we can change human nature or that we can establish utopia on the earth. We have a hopeful view of the future because we know the king and we know he's coming and his kingdom, which was inaugurated at the time of the incarnation and this, his king. And right now during this era of the church's ministry, we are bearing witness to that kingdom, that coming kingdom. We don't get duped by progressive utopian visions we simply think about the return of Christ and the kingdom, which he will, once inaugurated, will finally fulfill. So we have a lot to keep ourselves sane in this time. No, we don't buy uh, an unconstrained vision of humanity, perfectible humanity. We believe that there are intrinsic moral evils. And we do believe that we can remain hopeful for the future, future even if not optimistic about human progressive schemes. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Want a simple way your family can share Christ's love with someone today? Practice the ministry of kindness. Kindness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's an outward sign that the Holy Spirit is alive in our hearts. So when your family goes out to dinner or runs errands or goes out for any reason, remind each other that your mission is to leave everyone you meet a little bit happier than you found them. Be sure to speak politely to the server at the restaurant. Smile at the people in the store. Let someone go ahead of you. Remind your kids to hold the door for others instead of running them over. Look for little ways you can give others a little hug from God through your loving witness. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. What is the most daunting petition in the Lord's Prayer? The Catholic Catechism says it is when we ask God our Father to forgive our sins as we forgive others, meaning if we do not forgive those who have sinned against us, we don't expect the Father to forgive us. God's outpouring of mercy cannot penetrate our hearts as long as we have not forgiven those who have trespassed against us. This is sobering. The Catechism says there has to be a vital participation coming from the depths of the heart in the holiness and the mercy and the love of God. Only the Holy Spirit can make our mind the same as the mind of Jesus Christ, who could forgive even those who crucified him. The heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit can turn injury into compassion, purifying the memory so as to transform the hurt into intercession. 
Forgiveness bears witness to the world that love is stronger than hate. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, and on this day in 1998, President Clinton signed the International Religious Freedom Act. Now, this was a bill that prioritized religious freedom in U.S. foreign policy. And we're, again, commemorating its uh, origin and celebrating its anniversary today. Joining me uh, to do that and to also consider uh, some of the issues surrounding just and unjust war as it relates to the current uh, Israel Israel war against Hamas, we've got Dr. Daniel Philpop with us. He's professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. His books are many, and they include Just and Unjust Peace, An Ethic of Political Reconciliation, Strategies of Peace, Transforming Conflict in a Violent World, and Religious Freedom in Islam, The Fate of a Universal Human Right in the Muslim World Today. Hey, Dan, good to have you back here. Thanks. Great to be with you again, Al. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm pushing ahead. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> that's good. Uh, first of all, let's uh, let's go to the Middle East to begin with, in terms of just and unjust uh, war and just and unjust peace. Uh, how do you assess? It looks like it looks as though Israel has formally declared war on Hamas at this point. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, the basic um, provocation by uh, Hamas on um, October seventh is was a you know barbaric act of, of of aggression, and we all know about the vast killings of um, 
uh, c- civilians, and yeah. including concert goers and, and so forth. And then it was also just an act of aggression, the, the fundamental crime under the UN system and international law and of the traditional just war ethic embedded in the Catholic tradition. And um, so this doesn't, this is, there's no justification uh, for, for this. Or, um, and I think, you know, Israel's absolutely right. This is a, a crime that must be, must be, um, Responded to, yeah. and yeah. out of the basic principle of self-defense, sure. and it's an ongoing war of um, Hamas against Israel that has continued even after the basic attack, and um, so Israel has a, a basic uh, right out of self-defense to, you know, disable Hamas, yeah. and um, and I think that you know the very uh, existence of Hamas is. Um, you know, closely associated with the uh, with the act, it is hard not to. It would be hard to just sort of uh, push them back and leave it at that. I right. Think, right. You know, Israel is is entirely right to invade and to uh, d- disable the leadership of Hamas. How how frequently do we see? Uh, in in this case, Hamas was elected. Uh, yes. To be you know lead, governing in Gaza, so they they have uh, a proper. Uh, Civil, civilian, uh, civic authority. How often do we see nations with your know, governance engage in this kind of no holds barred targeting of non-combatants and civilians? I know in war this happens uh, all the time. The Allies targeted non-combatants at times in in the Second yeah. World War, but yeah. but now. Um, this, I don't know how often we see this kind of barbarism. Yeah, now this ranks high in the kind of blatant, um, you know, blatant barbarism, blatant yeah. violation of, of norms. And, um, yeah, interestingly, I think we have um, both Hamas and uh, Russia, uh, its invasion of Ukraine, I would argue, is another very blatant one. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of conflicts in the world that we could call morally uh, symmetrical, where there's roughly... Um, you know, kind of a balance of wrongs on both sides, right, or right. maybe it's a little more on this one than on that one, and so forth. But there are also ones that are very asymmetrical, and I think both of these are very, very asymmetrical. And I think it's important to respond uh, for the purpose of upholding uh, any semblance of international order, the, the norms that uh, we want nations yeah. uh, to live by. And um, and uh, something like this is, you know, not responded to. Um, it just leaves a kind of open uh, door to, uh, you know, things like this being done. Yeah, yeah. When you look at the uh, the the West's, uh, how they've come up with the Geneva Conventions, the, the broader category of the laws of war, uh, how much is international thinking today dependent upon the Christian tradition of just war? Well, it's one of the great gifts to civilization from uh, the Catholic tradition is the just war uh, ethic, um, devised really in its fundaments by Augustine. Um, uh, Aquinas basically repeated those criteria and then uh, elaborated them, developed them in certain respects, and then uh, uh, philosophers following in the tradition of St. Thomas Aquinas um, uh, uh, developed them even more. And um, particularly as the... uh, uh, international law has really had its flowering after World War II. It looked back to this natural law tradition. Of course, if it's natural law, then it's something that everybody knows by virtue of their reason. Right, but right. nevertheless, there was a tradition there developed, and uh, 
that proved a major source of our um, law of nations, as well as what is called humanitarian law, which uh, governs the um, armed combat and how it's carried out, civilians and humanitarian aid and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, Catholics can certainly say that we have a strong uh, enmeshment of uh, uh, historical and, and in terms of reason of uh, being committed to uh, the, the, the international law, the laws of war. Yeah, yeah. Uh, today uh, is the anniversary of the International Religious Freedom Act. Back in 1998, President Clinton signed it. Um, it was meant, it meant to prioritize religious freedom in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about the, the origin uh, of this act and uh, why it was so necessary at the time. Well, it's a remarkable story. In 1998, Congress passed the International Religious Freedom Act, basically creating a kind of foreign policy apparatus to monitor and uphold what, yeah, particular human right, religious freedom. And um, uh, now there are some other human rights which do have a kind of apparatus associated with them, such as human trafficking and uh, and so forth. But the degree to which Congress really got behind this and made it public was very significant and very important. And it was a way of lifting up um, a human right that is all too often ignored in U.S. foreign policy and international circles, and, and, and a human right yet that is embedded in uh, the Universal Declaration and in international covenants. But most importantly was seeing widespread violation in the world, and um, particularly um, you know, widespread violation against against Christians, and um, it was really an effort to uh, to do something about that, to enshrine that in American foreign policy. That uh, Congress passed that act. Yeah, yeah. This is I rem- I remember uh, when it was passed at the time, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, um, I would have thought this was already uh, a part of U.S. foreign policy, <laughs> but. Uh, but it clearly wasn't, and uh, this gives, uh, this actually extends uh, the conversation when we d- discuss uh, foreign policy. We can take a look. I mean, I remember during the Carter era, there was a lot of talk about uh, rethinking the importance of human rights in foreign policy. Yes, yes. Uh, and um, yes. so now we can actually say, when we talk about foreign policy, we have to consider uh, the parties that we're dealing with, what their stances are on uh, religious liberty and religious freedom, are we seeing? Yes. I mean, you've done you've done an entire book on religious freedom in Islam, uh, yes. so you're well aware of the, the present state of affairs. Are we making progress internationally in the recognition of religious liberty? Well, in the recognition, yes, we've got some. Um, 15 or 20 states now have uh, religious freedom as a part of their foreign policy apparatus. It's um, There are numerous NGOs out there which um, are dedicated to religious freedom. It's, um, you know, it's part of the kind of international discourse in a way that uh, it wasn't before. And that's, you know, largely because of these... Um, you know, initiatives. Um, you know, whether religious freedom is uh, more practiced out there in the world um, is another question. Yeah. Um, we've seen huge, uh, you know, kind of a, a backsliding and moving the, in the wrong direction in China, I would right. say, in particular. Yep. You look at Nigeria, the kind of massive um, um, killing of, of Christians there. In China, it's um, Christians and Muslims that are victims of human rights uh, violations, as well as uh, Falun Gong. Um, 
and um, you know many other places around the world as well. India has uh, you know serious problems with uh, the Hindu nationalist government uh, versus uh, Christians and Muslims, and um, so. But nevertheless, it is part of um, it is part of an accepted part of foreign policy and something that. If a president goes to one of these countries, um, you know it's, a, it's an acceptable thing to bring up and to uh, you know some bring bring to uh, attention to, and um, so there at least some uh, some some purchase has been uh, uh, developed there. Uh, let me ask you about uh, Muslim uh, majority countries in particular. Um, you know, the, in some some areas of the Muslim world, uh, democracy is regarded as a heresy. And I assume yeah. religious liberty yeah. is also heretical. Uh, but the Muslim world is not necessarily all of one fabric here, all of one uh, cloth. Uh, there are some Muslim-majority countries that have democracy or a form uh, to one degree or another. They have maybe have some kind of electoral democracy, but they yeah. don't have a, a full-blown understanding of democracy as we might have in the West. Are we seeing Muslim-majority nations move in the direction of electoral democracy. Well, that it's a good um, good question, and you rightly point out that sometimes you can have democracy but without religious freedom. Right. And there are countries such as Pakistan and Malaysia, Bangladesh, where you have electoral mechanisms; they genuinely choose their leaders, but you still have uh, serious religious freedom uh, problems. Um, so, what we really want is um, is a democracy that also has a healthy uh, respect for human rights and for uh, religious freedom. Um, I mean, one that one that's very interesting to look at is Indonesia. Yeah. Now, here is a country that is has been a robust democracy. It was, um, you know, dictatorship fell in 1999, and they've had since then they've had something like four, uh, you know, major contested elections. They've still got religious freedom problems, though. And um, but on the good side, though, there's a major movement called Nadlatul Ulama of about 90 or 100 million people that. Um, is actually a robust voice for a true deep tolerance and for religious freedom. Mm. And um, it does so. It's not secular. It's deeply religious, deeply Muslim, deeply committed to um, Muslim teaching. Um, but um, and it's the largest Muslim organization in the world. Wow. And it's actually a major voice and force for uh, religious freedom. Now, it's got opponents, too, even in, in Indonesia. Um, but uh, it really... Um, I think it, it doesn't get enough attention, but it should be given much more attention. I think we should all be champions and get behind Nadlatul Ulama. It's a great, a great hope. I'll have to ask you to spell that for me sometime. So. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Very helpful. And uh, uh, happy International Religious Freedom Day. So. <laughs> yes, let's all celebrate it. Thank you, Al. Really appreciate you having me on. All right. Dr. Dan Philpott, Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. I'm Al Cresta. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. 
That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I went to Las Vegas years and years ago for one of these cable shows. And and I was uh, shocked to see all these old ladies in their 70s and 80s getting off that plane, running for a slot machine. You don't have a chance to win. They're all fixed. I know, my uncle used to have slot machines. (laughs) EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Can your messy house lead to anxiety? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians states that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. If you walk in the door at home and you are greeted by clutter, peace may be hard to find. A messy house can lead to cognitive overload. While we're trying to concentrate on one thing, clutter can distract. According to research, women may be more affected by this type of anxiety. Societal roles and expectations can enhance the stress. To be fair, other underlying mental health disorders can lead to more clutter, depression, hoarding, and OCD, just to name a few. However, clutter can sometimes lead to more creativity. Bottom line, don't let a messy house define you as a good or bad person. Take baby steps to negotiate with those responsible for messes to make change or hire a cleaning person. Check out the Journey Strong tab for more on clutter at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. It's commonly understood that on the evening of October 27th, in the year 312, with armies preparing for battle, Constantine had a vision which led him to fight under the protection of the Christian God. 
And of course, his victory became a turning point in the history of the empire and certainly in the history of the church. Join me right now to share what we actually know about uh, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge and the vision and the Constantine's uh, conversion. I've asked Dr. Thomas Madden to join us. He's professor of history and director of the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at St. Louis University. The author of many books, including Istanbul, City of Majesty at the Crossroads of the World, uh, The Concise History of the Crusades, and check out his modern scholar lecture series with titles like Heaven or Heresy, A History of the Inquisition, or God Wills It, Understanding the Crusades, or uh, The Medieval World, uh, Society, Economy, and Culture, and their outstanding lecture series. Tom, good to have you back here. Thanks for joining us. Great. Uh, thanks for asking me, Al. I always enjoy talking to you. Well, let's go. Let's go to the sources for this uh, vision, the story of the vision. Uh, how do we know it? Um, sure. The, well, the uh, the written sources, the primary ones are um, uh, Lactanius, which is very fairly short. But the the one that's much more useful is Eusebius. Um, Eusebius was a, a friend of Constantine's later in life, and um, he wrote a, a history of the church, and then he also wrote a, um, a history, a biography of Constantine. And um, Eusebius uh, spoke to Constantine about his conversion experience. So we really do get it right from the horse's mouth wow. um, from that. And um, what? Uh, so, so those are... It, those are the, uh, the the main narrative sources. We also know um, that have good corroborative evidence from the fact that his coinage that he minted when he became emperor used the symbols um, that he talks about later when he uh, tells his story of his conversion. So it's 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 a pretty strong evidence that what Constantine is is telling his friend um, is in fact. Uh, what happened. Yeah, honestly, yeah. he would have no reason to make up a story like this. It, it didn't really serve him in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that he truly believed that he that really changed his life. Do we know what the sign looked like visually? Um, ac- according to um, uh, Eusebius' account, he says that, and, and it um, it may not, he, Eusebius doesn't actually say it's the night before. It could be at any time okay. before. Um, perhaps when he was on the march, it's hard to, to know. Um, but he says that uh, during the day, he initially saw a vision of a, a cross in the sky um, over the sun, and, um, and that next to the cross was the, the words, um, in hoax signal, wind case, the, in this sign, you will conquer. Mm-hmm. And then he was somewhat... Uh, surprised by this, um, Constantine previously had been a worshiper of the sun god, um, the unconquerable sun, and um, so he was somewhat confused by this this sign and the words. And then that night, uh, he had a vision in his dreams that Christ appeared to him and gave to him a new battle standard for his legions and told him that that um, he wanted him to adopt this new standard and that it would lead him to victory against wow. his rival, Maxentius. And the battle standard 
Uh, now, for, for Roman legions, the battle standards were incredibly important. Um, each legion had its own standards, and they really identified with them very much. In fact, some of them worshipped them. They, hmm. they had, like, they would have idols on them. Um, it, it was almost impossible to find a legion that didn't have some kind of idol on it. Uh-huh. And in this case, Constantine is literally telling his legions that they have to change the, the most revered thing that they have. Wow. And it has to now be this new symbol, which is, um, it's you see it in every Catholic church. It's the, the Cairo, the, the thing that looks like a P and an X, mm-hmm. superimposed over each other. And that was a early Christian symbol, a very common Christian symbol. Um, it's the first two letters in the word uh, Christus, Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, Constantine very much believed that uh, he was being given this for a reason. And you have to remember, this was a time in which Christianity was being vigorously persecuted. Yeah. For the last decade before this, Christianity was it was illegal to be a Christian. What would he have and, known about the Christian faith at that point? Um, he would have known probably the same things that most Romans kind of knew about it. They, it was considered to be a pretty lower-class religion. It was generally thought um, that they were... that that they were harming the Roman state, and that they were, um, uh, they, were, they, were they were doing it in a way that they, were, they, they refused, for example, to, to sacrifice to the emperors, uh, and they refused to uh, doing the, the civic kinds of duties that other Romans would do. And, um, and so this led people to be extremely suspicious of them, and Diocletian, a, a decade before, had begun an empire-wide uh, persecution. Now, um, Constantine's mother, St. Helena, um, there's some speculation that she may have been kind of a closet Christian. Okay. It's possible. Um, it's also possible that she, that she wasn't. But the reason some people think that is that when she and Constantine were in Trier um, for uh, several years, the the persecution of Christians was done very half-heartedly. The, the the edicts weren't really enforced, and so some people have have thought that that um, Helena and Constantine was very close to his mother. Um, that that Helena and Constantine were kind of had had a soft spot for Christianity. Mm-hmm. But whether that was true or not, we have no idea. It's pure speculation. All we know is that is that he had this religious experience. Uh, in fact, he, he considered himself, later in life, he considered himself to be like an apostle. And in fact, in the Greek Orthodox Church, it's not unusual to call him an apostle, hmm. uh, because, okay. because Jesus came to him just the same way, as Constantine would say, the same way that Jesus had come to Paul. Yeah, yeah. Um, St. Paul never met Jesus in life, but he met him on the road to Damascus. Yeah. I, it, is there any looking at this as a historian could anybody make the argument that Constantine thought that Christianity was a good bet <laughs> you know well, this, this is what strikes me is that it doesn't sound as though I mean, he has the vision, and so he acts on the basis of the vision. Were there other reasons he would have identified with the Christian God uh from you know from a standpoint of human calculation that this is somehow going to help yeah. me in the battle 
And as you might imagine, there have been historians that have, have argued that. Um, partic- it was particularly popular like in the, uh, er- in the early to mid-20th century when most historians tended to view anything that, was, um, that, that had any kind of religious element to it as a, there, there must be some other reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, they couldn't possibly have done this for for religious reasons. So what is it that he's getting out of this? Yeah. And some people would argue, they would argue, well, he knew that the empire was a mess and that he needed something that would bind everyone together. And so he decided to pretend that this all happened. And then when he, um, and then when he became the emperor, uh, then he he used this as a way of getting rid of paganism and trying to bind people together in this new this new religion so that they would all be kind of bound together. The problem with this um, theory is that I mean, if you really wanted to bring you know, let's say that you decided to do something like that, it's hard to imagine how an emperor could do it. But let's, for the sake of argument, say that he would. Why would you pick the one religion that was the most reviled in the Roman Empire? <laughs> right. I mean, why not pick his, the religion that he's familiar with, the right. Unconquerable Son, or pick Mithras cult, which was fairly popular? Um, there are all kinds of cults that you could have picked. Why pick the one that the state is actively persecuting, <laughs> and which the state has been telling people for a decade is causing the, the demise of the Roman Empire? Yeah, yeah. It's also clear from um, what he did immediately afterward. I mean, he immediately issued the Edict of Milan with uh, his colleague Licinius, which ended all persecutions of Christians all throughout the empire. And he also took a very keen interest right away. He he clearly believed that God had had chosen him for a purpose, mm-hmm. not only to end the persecution but also to help fix the church, because the church had just been so damaged by the persecutions for that long, mm-hmm. and he wanted to put the church back on its feet again. Um, so he took a very keen interest all throughout the rest of his um, his uh, uh, t- time on earth uh, as an emperor. He took a very keen interest in the health of the church, never in the theology of it. He was no theologian. Mm-hmm. Um, but and also he believed uh, that that the church was created by God, and that God would make His will known through the church. So as far as theology went, he relied on the church for that. Yeah. Uh, but he saw himself as the secular ruler whose job it was to protect the church and to give it the the physical uh, wherewithal to be able to um, to survive and to restore what had been what had been destroyed. So, and he does this all the rest of his life. Yeah. Now, the other argument that people would use sometimes for Constantine is that they would say, well, he never got baptized. Right. I was just actually, I was going to go there. Yeah. Yeah. Until his deathbed. Um, so how serious of a Catholic could he have been if he never got baptized? But actually that was a very common, in fact, some churchmen actually advised um, a man like Constantine not to be baptized. And the reason was was that at that stage, the theology of the forgiveness of what we would today call called mortal sin mm-hmm. wasn't exactly clear, and um, particularly bad sins, sins against God. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you were going to li- be in a profession like being a Roman emperor, where you were going to be waging war, 
um, ordering executions, um, those types of things that the church wasn't really sure about yet. Right. Um, because they had not had emperors as Christians before. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the the their um, the conservative view was just hold off because the one time they knew that you could be forgiven of all sins was at baptism. Right. So what they would do is they advised him, hold off on the baptism, do everything else, you know, go to church, um, not receive the sacraments, but but go to church, pray, all of the rest of it. And then he always kept churchmen, usually bishops, around him at all times, so that if he were suddenly to become ill, uh, he could be baptized right away. And it wasn't just him who did this. Other emperors after him did the same thing. Theodosius uh, did the same thing too. Yeah. So um, the, it was, but the but the art. But my point is, if in fact he was not, if this was all a joke, it was all just made up. Right. Then why would he not have got baptized right away? Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, it 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 only made sense. Yeah. The fact that he waited to get baptized was clear evidence that he thought this really mattered. It mattered. And, and he really wanted to go to heaven. Yeah, and, po- post-bap- um, and in fact, post-baptismal sin was a, was a real threat to that. It was a real threat for, for an emperor. Yeah. Because yeah. he's likely to do something that he is worried is going, to, is going to knock him out of heaven. And in fact, he planned his baptism out. He was, in fact, he liked, to, he liked to, to plan this. When he got older, he had this whole plan that he was going to... Um, be baptized in the Jordan River, so that he could be baptized like in the same way that Christ was. Uh-huh. And he was on his way there, in fact, when he died. Um, and uh, um, but the the bishops were with him um, on the road, and so um, they baptized him, and, wow. and all was well. <laughs> Great! It's such a compelling story, Tom. Thank you so much. Great talking with you yeah, again. Thank you, Al. Dr. Thomas Madden, Professor of History and Director of the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at St. Louis University. Uh, Again, take a look at his uh, Modern Scholar Lecture Series, uh, one from Jesus to Christianity, History of the Early Church. They're great. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. People have this false notion that after the Supreme Court came out with, of course, Roe v. Wade and gave us abortion on demand through nine months of pregnancy, all of a sudden, all of these regulations were put into place. When all of these independent abortion facilities popped up all over the country when Planned Parenthood started opening its doors and doing abortions legally after 1973, that it was always so safe and wonderful. And they believe this because they don't see these stories about the botched abortions, the women who have lost their lives, the women who have been violated because their information has been tossed out in the street with the garbage and the medical waste, not to mention the fact that the regulations that are on the books are not even enforced and rarely are these facilities inspected and yet people think that they're so safe. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. 
weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Kidnappings of priests, seminarians, and other religious have increased in Nigeria, and many times their communities will pay a ransom to bring them home. Is this a good idea? That's our question in this Poll of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week to let us know your thoughts. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Well, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for being with me and reminding you that you can follow up on our conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net. We'll have um, follow-up information. Uh, there'll be supplementary material following my commentary uh, and also the conversation with uh, Dan Philpot and also uh, Tom Madden. So head on over there. Dr. Matthew Bunsen in the next hour, uh, the Wednesday letter from the Vatican uh, calling for more synodality. We'll take a look at that. We'll take a look at some tragic... Uh, well, terrible moves in Nicaragua against the church and many more topics. Stay with me. I'm Al Cresta. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for being with us. Dr. Matthew Bunsen joining me this hour. It's our weekly look at the uh, events in the global church. Um, We will focus uh, a good part of our conversation on the synod on synodality, which is wrapping up uh, this month, and again there'll be a follow-up one year from now. And the uh, Holy See issued a letter to the Church asking Catholics to take an active role in the discernment and decision making of the Church. And I, you know, if you're like me, you say, "Sure, uh, what do I do? What you know, what am I supposed to do about this?" And so. We're going to try to find out. Obviously, the Holy See has a something in mind about how this, how you and I can participate in the discernment and decision making. So, how do we do that? We're going to try to find out. Uh, Matthew's been covering the uh, Synod on Synodality in Rome, and so we're going to join, be joined by him in just a few minutes. There are a number of other stories too. Uh, that we want to take a look at. It uh, looks as though the Ortega uh, regime in Nicaragua has now canceled registration of 25 institutions, including the Franciscans. Uh, the, again, the Vatican has put 35 Catholic martyrs, the Catholic martyrs of uh, Kandamal on in India, on, road, on the road to sainthood. That's something we'll want to take a look at. And there are a number of other stories that are really worth, I mean, what about a drag show at Notre Dame? Uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, wait, to Matthew, before we get to the details on it. But first, before we go uh, to Matthew, let's get to the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, October 27th. It's the Feast of St. Emilina of Boulancourt. 
Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. New explosions are reported in Gaza after Israeli forces carried out another ground raid against Hamas. Israel said it used troops, fighter jets, drones, and armored vehicles to soften Hamas targets. This comes as anticipation grows for a larger ground invasion into the Hamas-controlled territory. The U.S. has hit two facilities in eastern Syria in retaliation for attacks on U.S. forces by Iranian-backed militias. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said the self-defense strikes were at President Biden's discretion and carried out as a response to a series of attacks on U.S. personnel. The Satanic Temple has lost its lawsuit against a pro-life law in Indiana that largely outlaws abortion in the state. In its lawsuit last year, the Satanic Temple claimed that the ban violated state religious freedom laws because abortions are an exercise of their religious beliefs. In a ruling rejecting the lawsuit, District Court Judge Jane Magnus Denson said the temple failed to submit evidence that it suffered any injury in the case. House Speaker Mike Johnson is rejecting calls for tougher gun laws following the mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. In an interview with Fox News, Johnson said guns aren't the problem and now is not the time to discuss gun control laws. He said the problem lies within the human heart, adding that the House should focus on tackling mental health issues. And the search continues for the mass shooting suspect in Maine. CNN reporting authorities found an apparent suicide note written by 40-year-old Robert Card, who killed 18 people and injured 13 others in shootings inside a local bowling alley and a bar. Markets finished mostly lower today with the S&P joining the NASDAQ into correction territory. From your AlviMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. For the past 20 plus years, uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen has been active in the area of Catholic social communication and education. Uh, he's the author of, or co- and co-author of more than 50 books, including the Encyclopedia of Catholic History. Uh, we have a Pope, I'm Benedict XVI, also the Saints Encyclopedia, and he's had best-selling biographies of St. Damien of Molokai and St. Uh, Kateri Takakwatha. He... Uh, serves right now as the vice president and editorial director of EWTN News. And uh, he's a frequent guest with me here on Crest in the Afternoon. I'm very appreciative of his time. Hi, Matthew. Good morning. It's uh, or good evening, I guess. <laughs> it's nice to be with you. I've lost, we all lose track of the days at a certain point at the Senate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how, what is actually happening at this time at the Synod? Well, it's uh, about 11 p.m. here. Uh, so it's uh, hopefully they're they're done with their deliberations for the day, but it wouldn't surprise some of us uh, if they're not. And what I mean by that is that uh, we know that they are at work on trying to complete uh, the discussions and uh, organization of the 1,051 separate amendments that have been submitted for the final report that's supposed to be approved tomorrow wow. uh, by the participants. <sighs> So who who gets the submit stuff? <laughs> All of the uh, participants okay. uh, who are in the, the Senate, uh, bearing in mind that uh, they all have basically one vote. Uh, so the, with, with that much material flowing, how, how do they organize it? And how do you, how do you come up with a vote? Oh, it looks like we may have dropped... Okay. Uh, again, 
the trying to get a handle on on the mechanics of this has, has been a problem from the beginning, and uh, we've got again the synod on synodality was uh, the the lead uh, emphasis in a letter this Wednesday from the Holy See. Uh, I think a lot of us were surprised that they published this letter during the final days of the October gathering, um, but it was an invitation letter uh, inviting people to take an active role in the discernment and decision-making of the Church. Again, I think it's fair to say, well, how? How, how do you, what, what do you mean for us to do? I'm, this sounds good. How do we do it? Um, Matthew, you back with us? I, I'm here. Welcome I, to Rome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what do people, you've got over a thousand of these, what are they, suggestions or challenges? or What do people vote on? Uh, they're amendments. They're amendments. Well, so... Yeah, so what we are uh, looking at is that uh, we. this is the culmination of work throughout uh, this month, basically from the 4th of October uh, to just a few days ago when the final uh, discussions were held on the different points of what was called the Instrumentum Laboris, which was the blueprint for the Synod, right. and that included, as you and I have talked, mm-hmm. uh, various aspects of church life, uh, participation of uh, the laity, and this last week or so, the last 10 days almost, has been dedicated to authority and co-responsibility in the church. All of those interventions, all of the discussions at the round tables, the what are called the Tricoli Minori, were gathered together uh, and presented uh, report by report uh, into what is supposed to be a draft synthesis that was presented to them on Wednesday. Uh, They then had the chance to look at it and uh, to express their opinions, and that is how we end up with basically a thousand amendments from the 37 or so different tables. Okay. All right, so they're going to have to synthesize those into the final document? That's correct. Uh, All of this, then, uh, falls to the the work of a committee that I understand has added one or two extra staff people uh, to try to collate and gather everything together, Mm -hmm. uh, because those all then have to be uh, discussed and, one way or another, uh, brought into the final document. Yeah in a way uh, that is satisfactory enough for the majority of the members, by which I mean two-thirds of the members, uh, to vote. So there will still be, there'll be a final vote then? The presumption is uh, that the final vote on this final document, so to speak, on this synthesis report, uh, is supposed to be held sometime tomorrow. Okay. Um, Now, a lot of that, uh, having covered, I think this is my fifth synod, over the years, it's safe to say this is the most different one that I've ever covered. Yeah. But typically, uh, the the timeline for a lot of these approvals can vary from synod to synod. Uh, things were very orderly, for example, in 2012, uh, when I was here uh, for the synod of the new evangelization. It got much messier uh, in 2019 with the Amazonian synod. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was supposed to have been a, a document delivered in, in the late afternoon i don't think it was released if memory serves until about 9 p.m so it's everything varies uh and given the fact that you have 364 participants 
all of them, again, with uh, different opinions and amendments and other things, uh, you can see how this may take some time. But yeah. I think the expectation is uh, that this will be approved, assuming it does get approved, uh, probably t early tomorrow evening. Okay. And then uh, this document goes to the Holy Father, and does he... Are we expecting an apostolic exhortation? No. Uh, we... <laughs> We have to brace ourselves, and you and I have talked about this uh, for the fact that we are now uh, going to head into 11 months of preparation okay. coming out of this synod until the October 2024 synod, which is supposed to be the completion point uh, for all of the synod's work. So this is simply the end of the first half right. of the synod. So we're not going to get a halftime report from the Holy Father? Oh, uh, I think we will. Okay. I, I think uh, there are several possibilities that could unfold. Uh, the, the first is, uh, and I think this is the one that's most likely, uh, the Holy Father will take the document. Uh, we are almost certain to see it, uh, because there's no reason to keep it secret. Uh, and if it were, as we have seen, it's such a document is almost impossible to keep under lock and key, especially mm -hmm. since you have 364 participants who are yeah. supposed to go home and say, let's work off of this. Yeah. So the Holy Father, I think, will take this document and say, all right, let's get to work and we'll, we'll use this over the coming months. Wow. One other option is that uh, instead of having this used as the basis for further discussions and then we start this whole cycle over again of another instrumental laboris in other words another working blueprint for next year which we would figure would come out in the spring the holy father may do what he did in 2014 at the end if you remember al on the extraordinary synod on the family that he convoked basically to help prepare for the ordinary synod on the family and i apologize to your listeners if this is seemingly in the weeds, but there's a point here, that he used 14 and 15 synods in 2014 and 2015 to cover all of the ground that he wanted for the family. That, of course, led to the apostolic exhortation of Maurice Laetitia right. of some controversy. But he took the, that interim little report coming out of the 2014 synod and made it the instrumentum laboris, in other words, the blueprint for the next one. He may very well want to do that here. I see. Uh, because this is uh, presumably uh, a comprehensive gathering of all of the discussions and other things that have taken place over this last month. And I, he may decide that this is suitable uh, for what he wants to accomplish going forward. Okay. Or, again, he may simply tell them, let's go to work like you usually do and proceed. One of the big questions, and I think this is something that uh, is worth discussing, there are a few question marks attached to it, is what exactly are the tasks going forward for the next year coming out of this all the way to October of 2024? Mm -hmm. And I have spoken to a number of bishops, a number of participants, and that's still admittedly a little hazy. We're supposed to have some additional clarity uh, probably tomorrow. Well, the when this Wednesday letter that came out um, from the Holy See, yes. um, it, it First of all, I, I was surprised that it was published during the final days of the October gathering in Rome. But there's this invitation about taking an active role in the discernment and decision-making of the Church. 
So does this letter tell me how I can do that? Um, not in any specifics. Uh, now, I've, I've looked at the letter uh, and to be honest, in a couple of different languages to make sure that I'm, I'm appreciating exactly uh, what they're doing. Good. Typically, you're absolutely right. Uh, what the, the letter to the people of God is some kind of a statement that comes out of most synods. There was one, for example, uh, in 2018 uh, to youth from the synod, and it's a kind of exhortatory epistle mm -hmm. uh, that summarizes, uh, without getting into the sort of industrial detail of the final document, but it's really supposed to be a reflection uh, and an appeal from those who have taken part in the Synod. This one, in that sense, is, is very similar. But uh, I would say that this one is different for a couple of reasons. The first is that they did not wait until the end of the Synod to right. do this. They did it earlier in the week. Mm -hmm. so it actually came out on the 25th. And this one also notes uh, that this is an unprecedented experience in terms of Synods. Obviously, this is the first time that lay people, uh, women especially, mm -hmm. uh, have been invited to take part as full voting members. Then it gets into some of the, the themes. It's a snapshot of sorts of what they've been working on. And I found it, to be honest, uh, quite helpful just as a glimpse into the mindset of a lot of things that were taking place there. Okay. Uh, for example, the stress on, on listening. Yeah. Uh, we know that that's been the case, but this really stresses that. Mm -hmm. uh, but then it also talks about what uh, the way that this final synthesis report is going to be organized. And uh, certainly given leaks and everything else, uh, we know that that's the case where it talks about questions that have been discussed, areas of agreement, areas that are open to further discussion, and then certain action points or proposals heading out of this. And that's where I think some of the controversy may very well lie as, as we move forward. Yeah. Um, so what's the, what's the general attitude of the participants? Uh, you know, what are you hearing? Are, are people glad yeah. to be there? Uh, do they feel this is an exercise in futility? Are they, do they think <laughs> this is a possibility of great things to come? Yeah, um, a mixture of all of the above, as you can imagine, because you have 364 people literally from all over the globe. Mm -hmm. I've been especially curious uh, about the reaction and the opinions of the different bishops who have taken part in this thing. Uh, and they've been asked uh, at press briefings and elsewhere. And, and I know we can pick this up when we come back. Yeah, yeah hold it there. We'll come back and... and have you share what you're hearing, especially from, you know, particular bishops. My guest, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, our topic, the Synod on Synodality. Again, this week we received a letter published during the final days of this October gathering, urging us to take an active role in discernment and decision-making. I'm Al Cresta. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The Sixth Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This commandment is wide-ranging in its implications. It forbids us uh, not only from committing the very act of adultery, but also other sexual sins such as fornication or premarital sex, watching pornography and speaking lewdly. Likewise, homosexual acts and acts of masturbation are also forbidden us. And the Lord himself even enjoins us to a purity of mind that we should not freely entertain 
uh, lustful thoughts. And so it's wide-ranging, it's challenging, but it's in service of the great sacredness of human life which comes from sexual activity. So we thank God for this great gift of sexuality and we ask for His grace to live it with great reverence. The Sixth Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. What do we mean when we ask our Heavenly Father not to lead us into temptation? Is it possible for God to tempt us? It is not, asserts the Catholic Catechism. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Translating from the Greek verb to a single English verb is the difficulty. The Greek verb means we are asking God not to allow us to take the way that leads us to sin. This petition addresses the battle between flesh and the spirit, imploring the spirit of discernment and truth. With the Holy Spirit, we can discern between trials which are necessary for our growth and temptations which lead to sin and death. Discernment also entails distinguishing between being tempted and consenting to temptation. It unmasks the lie of temptation which makes the object look desirable, when in fact its fruit is death. God will never allow us to be tempted beyond our strength, says St. Paul. The battle, however, can only be won by prayer. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I told him about the woman who came to me and said her two children hadn't spoken to each other for two years. Their grandma died and she was very wealthy. She left half to each one. She said they're arguing over a commode. She said inlaid. Can you imagine being in hell? And somebody saying to you, what are you here for? EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me 
Dr. Matthew Bunsen in Rome for the Synod on Synodality. Uh, we were talking before the break about uh, Matthew's uh, mixing with various participants there, including a number of bishops, and I was asking him to just give us an idea of what he's hearing, how people are assessing uh, the effort that they've made, the uh, prospects for the future. And uh, Go ahead, Matthew, pick it up. Yeah, I think uh, one of the recurring themes has been that uh, there there were genuine apprehensions uh, heading into this, uh, okay. as you well know. Yep. Uh, not just apprehensions in some cases, but outright anxieties and, and serious concerns about where this may go. Now, that does not mean that uh, those possible... Ooh, lost them again. Uh, I will mention, too, that uh, Ed Penton, uh, talking with Cardinal Mueller, uh, Cardinal Mueller, who's, again, an outstanding um, theologian, uh, says that the Synod on Synodality will be used by some to prepare the Church to accept false teaching. That's the headline uh, from the National Catholic Register from Ed's interview with uh, Cardinal Mueller. I will, uh, you know, I, again, in the first century, John writes in his first letter, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So even in the first century, during the apostolic era, uh, the children of God were called upon to discern. Uh, and I think it's perfectly legitimate uh, for uh, theologians of the stature of Cardinal Mueller to let us know that there are those in our midst who uh, are trying to redefine uh, the tradition. And here's, here's another thing to keep in mind, too, that you may not uh, always know, and that is that the tradition is dynamic. It's not static. So we saw, for instance, one big development uh, in the Catholic tradition has been the increased attention paid to the covenant of uh, that God made with Israel. St. Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 9 through 11, and then uh, Romans eleven twenty nine, saying that the gifts and calling of God are irre irrevocable, that's led to a development, a legitimate development in the area of the church's understanding of the relationship between um, Israel and the church. So it, discernment is always important. Uh, tradition is not static. It is dynamic. And so we shouldn't be surprised that sometimes things are going to be, questions are going to be uh, brought up. Uh, but again, our confidence is in uh, the head of the church. Uh, and that is Christ himself. Matthew, uh, go ahead. We got cut off, unfortunately, there. Yeah, sorry. Again, uh, sometimes the Internet here has a, a few issues. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was saying that uh, there have been some genuine concerns uh, coming in, uh, and I think some still have those concerns. We'll see how this final document uh, turns out. But one of the things that uh, a number of bishops have said, including Archbishop Anthony Fisher, for example, of Sydney, who was uh, part of our coverage 
of the Synod, yeah. um, made the point that uh, he found it really quite remarkable to be in this room with so many people from all over the world. And the way that it was set up of discussion, of conversation, followed by prayer and reflection, was actually a, a very positive experience for him. Good. And uh, from that standpoint, uh, I think a number of bishops have said similar things. I know that uh, Archbishop Brolio at his press conference said something similar, that he's president of the USCCB and the, the Archbishop of the Military Archdiocese, former papal diplomat, so he's, he's obviously very diplomatic, but I think one of the things he said is that uh, it is this opportunity to listen to each other. So it became, I think, uh, a welcome departure for a lot of people from the kind of bitter polarization that yeah. we often see in the church. That does not mean, however, that there weren't some pretty strong disagreements, uh, especially at, when they got to the stage, uh, I think you and I talked about a week ago or so, uh, where they're put together in these tables based on different themes, uh, focusing, for example, on LGBTQ questions mm -hmm. and, and the ordination of women questions, that sort of thing. Uh, that's where real disagreements emerged. Okay. Some bishops expressed some unhappiness with the fact uh, that they were given only three minutes. I think Cardinal Gerhard Mueller referenced that in uh, his interview that you were just talking about with Edward Penton. Yes. Uh, that here he was, the former head of the congregation for <laughs> yeah, the doctrine yeah, of the faith, right. given one intervention for three minutes in, in the space of a month. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that, I, I can understand that. Um, in the the interview he did with uh, Edward Penton, um, he did raise questions, of, saying that there were those who are uh, there are certain factions or individuals who are using the synod on synodality to prepare the church to accept false teaching. Did he give any hint on how serious a threat that was? Well, I, I think. Uh... He speaks for a lot of bishops who saw what were his concern about manipulation of the process, uh, that, again, not being able to be heard. Uh, one thing that we can note uh, with some certainty, uh, Archbishop Fisher spoke about this. Uh, we had a remarkable Australian theologian uh, by the name of Rene Kula-Ryan, uh, who was also on our coverage yes. uh, and who gave uh, a great press conference uh, that you and I covered that last week, mm -hmm. uh, talking about just the issue of women's ordination, yeah. uh, that there that was, in fact, uh, a topic at this synod. And there were interventions about it. There were discussions about it. Now, that becomes even more interesting, uh, given subsequent developments sort of outside the synod hall. The first came from Cardinal Robert Prevost, who's the American and new head of the, the Dicastery for Bishops, who at the press briefing just a couple of days ago, when asked predictably uh, about women's ordination, because in the Sala Stampa, that is one of the most asked questions, uh, especially from uh, more progressive members of the media. Mm -hmm. uh, and his answer was, well, you really can't change apostolic tradition right. and he said not to mention the fact that clericalizing women under that situation would probably create more problems than it would ever solve then we have the release of uh in, in the italian language of a book that came out in june uh it's a, an interview book with pope francis 
And the Italian version was released just a few days ago. And in it, uh, it's very clear that Pope Francis has no interest uh, in doing anything uh, with the ordination of women to the priesthood. In fact, he, he stresses again that essentially that is a closed issue. And he makes uh, pretty clear that he is not a big fan of the ordination of women to some, or the creation of some sort of a female diaconate. Even the diaconate, so, yeah. Well, I mean, think about so that. Those are, those are indicators. I mean, think about that. I mean, that issue has now been addressed by uh, St. Pope Paul VI, it's been addressed by Pope Saint John the twenty, John Paul the twenty third. It's, uh, I'm, I'm sure it must have been addressed at one time by Benedict, although I don't recall the occasion. And now it's been ad- addressed directly by Pope Francis. You would think right. at some point, um, people would get the message that this is a closed issue, and if you're concerned about uh, female participation in the church. Get to work on other areas where female participation uh, maybe has been ignored, right? I mean, why? Well, why that's is, right. Why is the ordination of women? Why is that thought to be a solving of a problem of uh, female marginalization? I mean, it, it doesn't. Um, if if you think there are females have a marginal influence in the church, then go to those places where they can participate and expand and magnify their influence. But this, this is right. a dead well, end. The, 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 the question of the female diaconate, too, uh, has come up. Now, what they mean by a female diaconate is, is one of two things. There is this idea of ordination right. uh, that would be, of course, a pathway to holy orders that Many theologians, even here at the Synod, have said that that's simply not possible. Yeah. Then there's this supposed uh, recreation, is one of the, the phrases that they use, or, or restoration is another phrase that they use, of some sort of a, a diaconate from the early church, deaconesses in the early church. That is obviously a controverted issue mm-hmm. that has been studied by two different commissions under Pope Francis. And there is an old uh, line, and Pope Francis even joked about it at one point, that if you really want to uh, delay something or not have to deal with it anymore. Just form a commission to study it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he's had two now uh, on this topic, and it, it's distinctly possible there might be a third at some point. Yeah. But we're no closer to any sort of a resolution other than uh, the Holy Father himself stating that it's unlikely that this is going to go anywhere. But they are very persistent because this is part of this laundry list of changes that they're demanding. Yeah. Now, there's been no groundswell uh, within the Synod Hall based on reporting and, and what some have said. It's a massive call from all the women, 54 women members there. Uh, I think quite the opposite. There has been a, a vociferous opposition to the idea of the ordination of women yeah. to the priesthood yeah. and, and opposition to the, uh, some sort of a female deaconesses okay okay uh, let me uh we'll probably have to take a break first but i i want to get the question out and that is uh, has there been any direct um, assessment of calls for some sort of blessing for same-sex couples yeah we know that uh, at the different tables uh, the discussion has emerged 
uh, it was discussed. Uh, we know that there were themes that were given, mm-hmm. and a lot of the, the members were asked to fill out forms about what was most interesting to them, and those that expressed this topic were put together. That raised some eyebrows, and we can pick this up, I know. Yeah. Hello, there, Matthew. We'll take the break. My guest, Dr. Matthew Bunsen in Rome at the Synod on Synodality. We're doing our best to assess uh, what's going on. At this. It's wrapping up, and uh, really it's halftime. There'll be another gathering next October. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Can smelling certain scents improve our memories? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. When my wife and I had COVID in late 2020, we both lost our sense of taste and smell. In my case, I continued to have issues with my sniffer for a few months. Then I read a study that suggested smelling bold scents could help restore the connection between the nose and the brain. Sure enough, smelling fresh lemons every day seemed to help me recover. No wonder I love the aroma of lemons and incense. Another study, though, indicates that older folks who smelled fragrant essential oils got better sleep and improved memory and thinking. Brain scans confirm they got better. Be careful, though. Some essential oils can be harmful if inhaled over time. Always consult your doctor. Side note, from Genesis 2 to Revelation 18, there are more than 200 references to perfume, odor, and smell. For more on the study, look for our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Dr. Ray Garendi. If I disciplined consistently, I'd be disciplining constantly. If I were consistent in my discipline, that would mean I would discipline more, and I'd be disciplining him often. The exact opposite is the case. 
more consistent discipline leads to less constant discipline. Why? Because you're predictable. The child knows if he does A, you'll do B. That is why when you are predictable in your authority, you will actually have to use that authority less. Consistent discipline leads to less constant discipline. The more you act when you need to act, the less you will have to act in the future with similar misbehavior. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We are taking, uh, are evaluating, uh, looking at the, the Synod on Synodality and what we've learned from those who are participating in it. And uh, there's been a, some outstanding reporting uh, from the National Catholic Register and EWTN News. Uh, we were talking earlier about the those who were attempting that that. Those who had concerns about LGBTQ issues were all put together yeah. at the same table. Uh, was that done with any other topic? Oh, yeah. Uh, there were apparently discussions about things like migration, uh, ecology. This okay. is uh, the, the Pope who authored Laudato Si, so sure. I, I don't think that's unlikely, uh, as well as uh, the women in the church. Uh, so, yeah, there were a lot of different perspectives. And, and one of the uh, realities of this, and this was commented on by a, a few of the participants in some of the press briefings, that it, it seemed as though the only thing anyone wanted to talk about uh, at the Synod uh, were the hot-button issues of things like LGBTQ and, and same-sex blessings and the ordination of women, because that was just, it seemed at times, uh, and sitting in the briefing room, I, I can sympathize, it seemed as though that was the only thing they were ever being asked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what doctrines of the church are you planning to change? Yeah. Uh, when, in fact, there, it was a, a very wide discussion. Uh, and the perspectives were heard from people literally from all over the globe. And I think that was one of the things that uh, was accomplished. I made an observation on some of our TV coverage uh, that what did make this very significantly novel was that in previous synods where there was no lay participation, bishops from all over the world, and this is by design to the synod of bishops, so there's no criticism of it, right. uh, brought with them the perspectives of their faithful. Ultimately, uh, as detailed as those might be, those are secondhand reports. For the first time, uh, the synod was able to hear directly from uh, men and women from all over the world with their own lived experiences. Yeah. And I think from that standpoint, uh, for a global church that wants to listen, as Pope Francis has asked, mm-hmm. uh, this was something of a, of a remarkable opportunity yeah. for many of them. Yeah. No, I, I've, th- this idea of hearing from the laity is not, is not a problem for me. Um, right. <laughs> you know, I think, <laughs> yes. I think bottom-up communication is necessary. Um but it's not <laughs> Cardinal Mueller. <laughs> I can understand Cardinal <laughs> Mueller's frustration. <laughs> yes. You know, where he, who has served as a prefect of the Dicastery for the, Con- the Doctrine of the Faith, is given three minutes and 
that the same three minutes is given to, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, Ugandan layman who, <laughs> who's not been to seminary and, you know, well, sure, I do want to hear from you, but if you're talking about theological issues, I think I'm going to side with the the cardinal here. Uh, <laughs> yes, you know. Well, and he made the observation in his interview with uh, Edward Penton. Uh, you can find ncregister.com if, if you're looking to read this, and, and I encourage you to do so, along with a couple of other articles that I want to mention before we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did say that uh, one of the frustrations that he had. Uh, and I'm sure that this is exactly the same uh, for many, many bishops and even uh, fully trained lay people who are there, that they were hearing a lot from very emotional appeals and things from people who have not just the, a, a, a lack of direct academic theological formation, not in any way to sound snobbish, but I mean that they're not theologians, commenting in many cases on fairly complicated theological right. topics. But then Cardinal Mueller also noted that some of the presentations, they were they felt as though they were being talked to like children. Right. And right. these are cardinals, these are remarkable bishops and archbishops from around the world, and some very, very uh, superbly trained lay people. Yeah. So it, it, one of the challenges you have with something like this is that you can't talk to everyone. Right. Uh, and some are going to feel either insulted or you're risking in, in other ways uh, having conversations that just go way over the head of a lot of the participants. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was reading the interview with Cardinal Mueller, and it's uh, there, there are a lot of sad stories out there. Um, you know, people who were hurt because of somebody's attitude about uh, you know uh, homosexuality. Um, mm-hmm. th- th- that certainly you acknowledge the tragedy in some of these stories, but it doesn't have any immediate bearing on church teaching. Um, you know, that some young man committed suicide uh, because, I'm not even sure what the circumstances are, but even even if it were uh, somebody uh, within the church uh, was insensitive or, uh, you know, put this person down, Everybody I know would find that to be tragic, but it doesn't. It doesn't mean that somehow we change, try to change the moral law when it comes to same-sex um, acts. It's it just not going right. to happen. I, and I think that's that. It, you get this. I've been in situations too where you begin to feel patronized um, from people who have these terrible stories to tell. As though you've never heard them before. Do I think that Cardinal Mueller never heard such stories? No, I think he's heard plenty of stories like this through his ministry over the years. So yeah, yeah. Well, and, and one of the uh, other things that uh, I think Cardinal Mueller has expressed concerns about that uh, a number of individuals have uh, going in, and, and you and I actually talked about this i think a couple of months ago as we were looking at this instrumentum laboris Mm -hmm. again this blueprint for the senate is this third module this this third week and that it was focused on authority and co-responsibility in the church and we heard uh, a number of theologians uh, including ormond rush uh, from a 
Australia, uh, Father Dario Vitali. These are obscure names I know to a lot of people, but within academic theology, uh, they are well known uh, for being adherents to a very different conception of hierarchy, the census fidelium, the census fidei, the relationship of all of that to the magisterium, apostolic tradition, the structures in the life of the church. So it, it is fascinating, on the one hand, that we're seeing the collision of these two visions of the Second Vatican Council. It simply doesn't want to go away, uh, because you have so many theologians who have this idea of a hermeneutic of rupture, who yeah. see this in, in almost a 1970s way yeah. of theology. And then those who are adherents of what I think has been the really successful project that began, especially with John Paul II, of an interpretation of the, of the Council of Continuity and Reform. Right. right. And it, that has all played out uh, this week in the Synod, and I think this is going to be something we're going to be unpacking for a while, because we have to, given the potential influence it's going to have in the next year. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, good. I mean, I, I, I'm all at—you know, there was a time a few years ago, well, about ten years ago now, where I thought that uh, those old 1970s concerns were dying out. Um, but under this pontificate, uh, people have been invited back in um, and, you know, to revive uh, some of these discussions. And I, my hope for the Synod is that bringing these people together face-to-face, uh, that the hermeneutic of continuity is going to prove itself to be vastly more fruitful and uh, uh, moving towards authentic reform than the hermeneutic of rupture, which, in my own opinion, uh, leaves us with a church that is separated from its 2,000-year history. So... That's right. And and we're looking at uh, interpretations of authority in the life of the Church uh, that really go back to a number of, of theologians, uh, to, to borrow your thing, that, that we thought were of, of a different time. Uh, I think of Edward Skillabeats, for example, yeah. and, and his vision for the Church. I think also of someone like Carlo Cardinal Martini, yep. uh, who had this grand vision uh, of a church that is in permanent synodal status, yes. that he wanted a permanent synod. Now, one of the proposals, apparently, that has been floated, and we'll see if it survives the amendment process, is this notion of a permanent synod that would replace the synod of bishops. Now, for what it's worth, if you go to the Vatican website, the official Vatican website, and you look at the pages for the synod of bishops, it says very clearly the synod and then in parentheses, formerly the Synod of Bishops. And if you look at some of the official documents, I think especially of a very technical book called the Annuario Pontificia, which is like the, the Vatican's annual book of pretty much everything you want to know about the Holy See mm-hmm. in one fat little red book, it's dispensed with the idea of the Synodis Episcoporum, in other words, the Synod of Bishops. It now simply says the Secretariat of the Synod. So something is already in the mind of the organizers hmm. that coming going forward, this is going to be potentially at least a very different structure. But all of the bureaucracy and I think all of the theology hasn't caught up with those changes yet. Mm-hmm. And that I think is going to be very significant and something that we're going to need to watch in the coming months and, and even the coming years. Matthew, uh, 
do we have time? Yes, I think we've got about three minutes. And I promised yeah. people that we'd talk about uh, these changes in Nicaragua. And I want to make sure I get those out there where you've got Daniel Ortega's regime now canceling the legal status and registration of 25 institutions, including that of the Franciscan Friars Minor and several other Christian groups. Um, apparently, he's going to also uh, take over their assets. Well, that's right. Uh, nothing surprises us now uh, in terms of the Ortega regime. And I think we have to brace ourselves for the fact uh, that these arrests are going to continue and the violence is going to continue. But the seizure, I think, is another way uh, that they're using uh, of assets and other things uh, as a way of impoverishing the yeah. church. But we've also seen as well various NGOs and, and others, I think the Franciscan Friar of Minor uh, and others. Um, and it's escaping the notice of a lot of people in media. Understandably, we have now that the situation of the horrendous situation in the Middle East, we've had the ongoing war in Ukraine. So there's a lot happening. Yeah. But it's the idea of religious and academic freedom uh, that is under assault there. Uh, and there's always a concern that this is the type of thinking that could spread to other parts of the world. But Ortega has a particular venom uh, toward the Catholic Church because it is now really the only institution left in Nicaragua uh, that is standing up to yeah. uh, the Ortega regime, and it therefore must be crushed. Uh, let's end on a good note. Talk to me about the 35 Catholic martyrs of Kandamal. I don't know this particular name in India on the road to sainthood. Church in India has welcomed the news that the Vatican will initiate the beatification process for 35 Catholic martyrs. I guess we lost. I guess we lost Matthew at the last minute here. Well, let me let me just uh, again on October 21st, 21st, the Catholic Church in India made public uh, a note from the Vatican to Castry for the causes of saints to initiate the processes processes of beatification for the servant of God. Contessoir, Eagle, and Companions. Uh, we will spend some time next week on this uh, wonderful story. Uh, it also lets us know that sometimes, right, when Christ calls you, he bids you come and die. I'm Al Cresta. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Father Benedict Groeschel. I often go back to my childhood. In church, we love to be reverent, to Christ present in the Eucharist, to Christ on the cross. But I was also impressed by the reverence of my friends in the Salvation Army. They had a little band. And I used to walk past the band on Sunday morning on my way to church. And I was just a child. But I said, you know, they're trying to pray to God. They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular, and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class.
EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Kidnappings of priests, seminarians, and other religious have increased in Nigeria, and many times their communities will pay a ransom to bring them home. Is this a good idea? That's our question in this Poll of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week to let us know your thoughts. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Well, I want to mention our friends at Catholic Radio in South Carolina. They need to hear from you next week. Uh, they're airing their annual Radiothon broadcast next Wednesday through Friday. So if you're listening at any of their 11 stations across South Carolina, please go ahead and support your local EWTN Catholic Radio station. Very important. Without the local stations, we can't deliver the programming. Thanks for being with me today. And let me remind you, you can follow up on our conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net to the Crested Guest Archives there, and you'll have follow-up information on all the conversations we had with uh, Dr. Dan Philpop and with Dr. Thomas Madden, and lots of material on the Synod on Synodality. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio, and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506. Or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506. Or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.